Hi, everyone. My name is Stephanie Smith, host of the Connection Place podcast, where we connect our heart's passion for God with our mind's understanding of Scripture, where we come together in the place where Christ longs to connect with us, His Word. All right, we are here at the third Sunday of Advent, and so far we've covered the entirety of Luke chapter 1 and have learned about the prophetic words and encounters surrounding the births of John the Baptist and Jesus. We left off with John the Baptist entering the world, with Jesus' birth still to come. I'd invite you to go back and catch up on the previous two episodes if you haven't yet. So let's dive into chapter 2, where we finally learn about the birth of Jesus the Messiah. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, and who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no lodging available for them. All right, so as is our practice, let's zoom out a little bit here and see what's actually happening in the text. Joseph and Mary end up traveling to Bethlehem in Judea because of a census being required by the Roman emperor. While they were there, they gave birth to her firstborn son, who we know is Jesus. We have seven verses, and in these seven verses, a lot is being set in motion to set the stage for this really big deal event, which is very interesting because when you contrast the complex narrative surrounding the birth story of John the Baptist in chapter 1, the actual birth narrative of Jesus here so far in chapter 2 is quite brief. Luke really wants to highlight the humble circumstances around the birth of Jesus here. Luke is also looking to highlight and substantiate the messianic claim that Jesus has, because Luke mentions Jesus' birthplace as Bethlehem, a town of David. As we've learned in previous episodes, the prophesied Messiah is to come from David's line and from Bethlehem. Lastly, Luke is also trying to highlight the political situation by talking about Augustus, Quirinius, and the census. It's important to acknowledge here that there's actually some controversy regarding this part of Luke's account as it compares to Matthew's account of the birth of Christ, which you can find in Matthew 1 and 2. According to Matthew, Jesus was born during the time of Herod, and according to Luke, Jesus was born during the time Quirinius was governor of Syria. The issue here, potentially, is the timing. In other words, if Herod died in 4 BC, which we know, and Quirinius didn't become governor until roughly 6 AD, which is also a true statement, that it's not possible for both things to be true during the time of Jesus' birth, since that's roughly a 10-year gap in history. As a result, skeptics have used this to call Luke's account into question and to even question the inerrancy of the Bible. In my digging into this issue using various commentaries, primarily the expositor's abridged Bible commentary of the New Testament, 
it would seem there are some plausible explanations here. Quirinius may have actually ruled on two separate occasions, and thus he may have taken two censuses. The first census mentioned here would then have taken place during his first term, and the second census, mentioned in the book of Acts, which is Luke's follow-on to this original account, would have taken place during Quirinius's second term. The first term would have lined up with about 4 BC, while the second term would have lined up in 6 AD. There's also the thought that the Greek word for first, used here in reference to the census, can also mean former or prior. This would make the meaning of verse 2 to be, this census was before that one made when Quirinius was governor. Details of such a census may have been common knowledge to those during Luke's time, but lost to us in modern times. In any case, there are different theories out there as to what is actually going on, and I would encourage you to explore and do your own research. In my opinion, Luke has set his mission to be a meticulous historian with a journalistic style of reporting in this account. And I do believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that it is infallible. I believe this based on my overall study, the number of prophecies that the Bible has so far rightly predicted, and my own experience of the Word and its undeniable impact on my life. So my inclination is less to question Luke's accuracy in reporting and more to question our modern-day accuracy in interpreting, translating, or correctly discerning the scriptures and historical records. But as I've mentioned, I am not a biblical scholar, and I'm definitely adding this to my list of questions to investigate more deeply. Something else I learned while studying this portion of the text, again from the Expositor's Abridged Commentary, is that the word usually translated in could mean a room, a billet for soldiers, or any place for lodging. However, this word in this text is not the usual Greek word for an inn. In this usage, Luke is telling us that the only place available for them is one usually occupied by animals, possibly a cave or some part of a house or inn. Even today, many places around the world keep their livestock in the same building as the family quarters. The animal feeding trough, or the manger, is what was used for baby Jesus' crib. In our modern eyes and view of this scenario, we might want to project that this was a bad situation. But Luke doesn't actually suggest this. He doesn't seem to portray that this was a dismal situation with unfeeling caretakers as villains. What Luke is doing is contrasting the proper rights of the Messiah in his own town of David against the, again, humble circumstances of Jesus' actual birth. As we will see in our continued study of the New Testament and of Jesus' life, Jesus often does the unexpected and finds himself in situations that would not be expected of a king with authority and power. It's a hallmark of his life, and of how we are to live, that the most noteworthy thing about his birth is that it was not noteworthy at all. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. He humbles the proud and exalts the humble, and at the right time the humble will be lifted up. This is the Jesus way of doing things, as scripture tells us and he's doing that right from the start. Let's keep going with verse 8. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. 
Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby, lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. All right, so first things first, let's zoom out and assess what's happening in the text before we try to analyze anything. We have some shepherds in their field, guarding their sheep, and it's night. All of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appears among them. The shepherds are scared, but the angel seeks to reassure them with the good news that will bring great joy to all people the news about Jesus the Savior being born today in Bethlehem. The angel tells them how they will recognize Jesus, and then he is joined by a whole vast host of others in heaven, all of whom are praising God, giving him glory and bidding us peace. Once the angels leave the scene, the shepherds decide to go to Bethlehem and see about this thing that's happened, that the Lord has told them about. They hurry to the village, find Mary and Joseph, and Jesus is there in the manger. The shepherds, having now seen the Savior of the world with their own eyes, go and tell everyone about what has happened and what the angel told them. And then they go back to their flocks, praising God, because everything was just as the angel had said. All right, so this is the part of the story that just about everyone knows about, right? This portion of the text is where we get our nativity scenes from, and what our children's Christmas plays center on, this visitation from the angel is probably the most major thing that's happened in connection with the birth of Jesus, aside from Jesus himself, of course. So by this point in Luke's account, we're no strangers to angels. This is now our third visitation of an angel, which is actually kind of cool because the Holy Trinity is comprised of three distinct beings, making three a holy number, and here we have a third angel visitation, a visitation which is to announce the full circle arrival of the Savior that has only been prophesied about to this point. Now, who is the angel actually visiting? It's not Jesus, though I have to guess the angel would probably really love to see Jesus right now in this major moment in time, even if it's just to see what he looks like as a human baby. It's also not Mary. No, it's the shepherds that the angel visits. People who have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus or his birth, 
right? Why are these people chosen? Well, there's plenty of significance here, and it all lines up with what we know about God's character so far and how he likes to involve mankind in his really big deal events in unexpected ways. Firstly, the angel appears to more than one person. It's a group of shepherds. I think this is really cool because that means there's more than one witness to this incredible situation. With one person, there's deniability, both within their own mind and with other people. But with multiple people, we have a certifiable testimony that can't be refuted. And it's actually in keeping with the Levitical guidance to have more than one witness. Even in the case of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary, while the angel only appeared to one person in each of those scenarios, Zechariah and Mary, they had each other as witnesses of a kind. Indeed, the angel indicated Elizabeth's pregnancy as a sort of proof that God is doing miraculous things. And Zechariah and Elizabeth also had other witnesses in terms of the crowd and neighbors. So coming back to this visitation, the angel is appearing to a group of shepherds so that those people can all testify to one another and to others that aren't part of this scene as to what the angel says and that they discover it to be true. Secondly, shepherds are, to use that word again, a humble group of people. Their work is a humble kind of work. The birth of a king, and not just any king but the king, might demand a more impressive audience, but that's not what Jesus is here to do. Impressing people isn't on the agenda, but bringing good news of great joy is very much on the agenda, and lowly shepherds in the middle of the night are probably very keen to have some good news and great joy. Thirdly, let's take a look at Psalm 23. Hopefully you're familiar with this psalm. King David who we understand by now is part of the ancestral lineage of Jesus, got his start as a shepherd. And later, he writes this psalm that tells us that the Lord is his, and our, shepherd. God himself identifies with being a shepherd, which means he is not too good to take on this humble role for humanity. To prove the point even further, later on, Jesus will refer to himself as a shepherd too. Being a shepherd a person who cares for his flock, who tends to its every need, to indeed its greatest need of salvation, that's what Jesus is here to do. So it's extremely fitting in just about every context that the angel is reaching out to human shepherds on behalf of the greatest and truest shepherd here. So the angel appears to the shepherds and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounds them. And of course, The shepherd's first reaction is not awe or wonder, but terror. Again, we're seeing a common theme in encountering angels. But the angel, as before, assures them not to be afraid, for he brings good news of great joy for all people. Let's just soak that in for a minute. Jesus is good news of great joy for all people. It's not just the fact that he's born. It's the whole of who Jesus is that makes this a true statement, which means that what the angel speaks to the shepherds is absolutely true for us today. Jesus is, and will always be, good news of great joy for all people. He is good. He brings joy. And there's not one person on this earth who does not need him 
and would not benefit from him being in their life. The angel continues by explaining why this is good news of great joy for all people. The Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Savior means to save us from the wretchedness of human sin, ours and that of others. Messiah means to deliver God's people from those who seek to oppress and destroy them. Lord means to rule as king over all. You can see just from these words that the expectations of what kind of role Jesus would play as a human on earth would be one wrapped in power and might, in strength and victory. These words tell us, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that Jesus is the champion of his people, which is why we'll come to see throughout Jesus' life that there are many people who are confused by who Jesus is and why he does things the way he does them. Jesus is indeed Savior, Messiah, and Lord, but he looks and acts far different than how anyone expected when he's on earth. We today have the benefit of hindsight and the Holy Spirit, but the people then didn't have those things, which is why I very much empathize with those who shunned Jesus and even wonder if I would have done the same during those days. I hope not, but I do thank God that I was born in this day and time. And of course, the angel again repeats the birth location for the context of those people and to affirm in every way that this Jesus is the prophesied legitimate Messiah. The angel then tells the shepherds how they can recognize this baby to be the one he's talking about, which means he actually invites these shepherds to go and see the Messiah for themselves. Otherwise, why would he tell them how to recognize him? This is a pretty amazing invitation. What a moment to be included in. The angel says they will recognize him by this sign. They will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. So here we also begin to see perhaps that the circumstances of Jesus' birth were not just humble, but also specific and unique. I'd say it would be safe to assume that there weren't exactly tons of babies around where they were that they would be found snuggled in strips of cloth and lying in an animal feeding trough. Sometimes we may find that we don't exactly love the way God has shown up in our lives, that we might have expected a red carpet treatment, but instead had a far lesser experience. Just know that God has intentionality behind everything he does, and even Jesus came to earth, which was already enough of a downgrade, arguably, coming from heaven. And not only that, but he was confined to the body of a baby lying in an animal trough. None of that means God wasn't present. None of that means Jesus didn't matter. None of it was to test Jesus or put him in his place. It wasn't an indictment on Joseph and Mary's ability to provide for their son. It was, simply, to serve the purpose of God, which was to bring glory to God and good news of great joy to all people. May we be satisfied when we don't understand or maybe don't like the way God is bringing about his promises in our lives. And may we be all in with God's way that we may one day be lifted up at the proper time and in the proper way, just as God promises. All right, 
here's where things get really cool for the shepherds. As if it's not cool enough. A whole vast host of heaven joins the angel. This is definitely a rare occurrence in scripture. Indeed, it may be the only one of this type, although I'm not 100% sure about that. But this is where Jesus gets his red carpet treatment. It's not here on earth. It's in heaven. On earth, things may be pretty lowly and nondescript. But in heaven, there's a whole party happening because they know the significance of what is going on. And really, Jesus, by the circumstances of his birth, and being a baby and all, isn't really invited to this party, and he wouldn't really understand it if he was. But even so, this party is all about him and celebrating what he's going to accomplish on behalf of God for us. There will definitely be times in our lives where here on earth, things are not really celebrated, where we do the obedient things and get no applause or praise. But in heaven, that's another story. So anyway, this vast host joins the angel and they are praising God, saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. I find this to be a really interesting thing to say. No surprises about glorifying God. That part makes sense because God is always worthy of glory. But it's interesting as to why the vast host is glorifying God. They are praising him because he is going to deliver his people through Jesus. He is doing what he said he would do. I think this is amazing and says so much about what heaven is about. Heaven is absolutely about God, and God is absolutely about us. Otherwise, why would the angels even care what is happening on earth? They care because God cares, because it brings God joy and it is God's nature and heart to reach for us. And so they rejoice and praise God for being true to his nature and following through on his promises to us. That's just, I mean, that is just really incredible to take in, that all of heaven is mindful of us. I also love how the host of heaven says this, Peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. This is both reassuring and also specific. I love that heaven wants people on earth to have peace. Indeed, I'm not sure there's much to be prized on earth in the human heart above peace. But, where the good news of great joy was for all people, this wish for peace is for those with whom God is pleased. This means it is only those who please God by accepting Jesus who will actually experience the peace of Jesus. This should serve as a sobering warning and also as a beautiful invitation. This invitation of Jesus belongs to all people, but not all people will accept him. Lord, may we humbly submit to this warning and not forsake the invitation to choose Jesus. So, the angels all return to heaven and the shepherds are left behind in their fields. Nothing has changed and yet, Everything has changed. Naturally, the shepherds want to go see with their own eyes what the angel told them how to find, so they go in search of the baby Jesus. The text doesn't tell us how long of a journey this is, but I imagine it's probably not too far. They hurry to the village of Bethlehem, find Mary and Joseph, and they set their eyes on Jesus, the promised Savior, Messiah, and Lord, as a tiny, helpless, 
unknowing and unknown baby lying in a manger. I can only imagine how these shepherds felt. They must have been amazed and emboldened because they immediately began telling everyone about the angel and this child Jesus. And all who heard it were astonished. In fact, the shepherds become the very first evangelists of the Christian era. I do wonder, being an introvert myself, how Mary and Joseph felt at having such unexpected guests and this unexpected audience of shepherds at such a time as this, when they are probably tired, lacking in energy, feeling vulnerable. But the text tells us one of my absolute favorite things, that while everyone else was talking about and spreading the news of Jesus' birth, Mary was storing all these things and treasuring them in her heart. I personally find this to be instructive and also just beautiful. There are many things in my life that are too special to fully share with others. It's not about hiding or being secretive, although privacy and restraint aren't bad qualities. It's more that some things are meant to be shared and some things are meant to be treasured between just ourselves and God. In the case of Jesus' birth, it's actually both. The shepherds do the sharing with the world, and the mother of Jesus does the treasuring. That feels right. It seems to be the right role for each of these people in the story of Jesus' birth. The text also says that Mary thought on these things often, which is something we should do as well when it comes to the wonderful things God has done for us. All right, let's wrap up today's episode with the final verses, starting in verse 21. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering, as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, If a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. One more time, let's zoom out and see what's happening here. Mary and Joseph follow the Mosaic law to circumcise and name Jesus eight days after birth. At some point, they also take Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, along with a purification offering, again in accordance with the law. So this section can seem like a bit of a formality and one that's easy to skip over, but I think there are a few insights that come alive to me when I read this. First, just like Elizabeth and Zechariah were obedient to the angel's instruction to name their son John, Mary and Joseph are obedient to name Mary's son Jesus, the name that was chosen for him before he was even conceived. Which is kind of a crazy thing to think about, right? Obviously, this usage of conceived means physically as a human in a human womb, but we know that Jesus existed long before this time. It kind of makes me wonder if Jesus has always been named Jesus, or if it was a special name given to him for while he was on earth. In any case, Mary and Joseph follow the Mosaic Law twice in this passage. First, to circumcise and name Jesus, and second, to present Jesus to the Lord alongside a purification offering. During those times, after birth, the mother was considered ceremonially unclean. 
male children were then to be circumcised after eight days, at which point the mother would continue to be ceremonially unclean for another 33 days. Once this time period was complete, a purification offering would take place using either a lamb or, as mentioned here, two doves or two young pigeons. It's very noteworthy that the doves and pigeons are expressly called out here in this text because these specific animals were used by people who were poor. Doves and pigeons are just more affordable than lambs. So this tells us that Mary and Joseph are poor, and birthing the Son of God hasn't changed this fact of their circumstances. This is one among many things that should tell us that earthly wealth is not an indicator of God's blessing. Or at least, it's certainly not the only indicator. And of course, along with the purification offering, Mary and Joseph dedicated Jesus to the Lord. This was, as the text points out, customary to do with first sons during that time. What Luke really wants us to understand here is that Mary and Joseph did not consider themselves as special or above Mosaic law, even though they are the earthly parents of the Son of God. I kind of feel like if anyone were to be given a pass from having to do things by the book, it would be Jesus, especially given the extraordinary circumstances surrounding his birth. But no, God's law is perfect and relevant even for Jesus, perhaps especially for Jesus, as he will later on come to say that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill every word of it. All right, so that's all of my insights. How about a couple of fun commentary facts? Going back to the angel's announcement, according to the Expositor's Abridged New Testament Bible Commentary, the angel's announcement uses several of the most frequently used words in Luke's Gospel. Bring, good news, joy, today, Savior, and Lord. This emphasizes the tremendous importance of the angelic pronouncement. It is a bold proclamation of the gospel at the very hour of Jesus' birth. The time has come for the fulfillment of the prophetic expectation of the Messiah's coming. Also, I didn't know this, but evidently shepherds during that time were often considered to be untrustworthy and, due to the nature of their work, ceremonially unclean. They were basically the social outcasts of their day. It's so interesting that God would call himself our shepherd and model that for us through Jesus by revealing that he is the trustworthy, holy, clean shepherd that came for each one of us, regardless of our social status or our worth in the eyes of the world. Before we wrap the episode, remember that this is an Advent series, and the theme for today, the third Sunday of Advent, is joy. Well. This really couldn't be better timing because we've learned today that Jesus' birth, and not just his birth, but the whole of what his birth and life actually meant and means for us, is good news of great joy for all people. There is no greater joy than Jesus, than knowing him, believing in him, and receiving his salvation so that our names are written in the book of life. There is no greater joy than the inheritance waiting for those of us who are brothers and sisters in Christ, the inheritance of eternal life in heaven with God, with nothing between us anymore. And while we wait, there is no greater joy than being held close in the arms of our Father 
as a beloved child of God, experiencing his peace and favor on earth. And that is all possible because of Jesus. Thanks again so much for listening. I hope today's episode has blessed you and encouraged you in your pursuit of Jesus through his word. See you next time here at The Connection Place.